You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Daniel Ahmed uh, in our studios here in South London uh, at uh, Voice of Islam. So, um, first time in the studio, Daniel. Yes. How are you feeling? I'm good, yeah, but yeah. a bit more nervous. No, don't yeah. be nervous. We all had that. We all had that. The first time we were in the studio, you you have that kind of the butterflies feeling and you're wondering, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, am nice. I going to say something wrong? Just uh, you'll, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah, inshallah. <laughs> yes, yes. Sir. God willing. God willing. So today, like all days, we have um, two topics, right? We've got a two-hour show. So we'll be dealing with two very kind of like, uh, I, I suppose... Um, ends of the spectrum topics, right? One being, uh, in the first hour, we'll be dealing with human trafficking. So we'll be looking at uh, basically, you know, how is that affecting the UK? The laws that uh, are actually being brought in uh, to regulate or to uh, stop human trafficking. Um, and, you know, just how is that all panning out? I mean, we we've seen... Uh, the aborted uh, flights to Rwanda, what kind of implications that has regarding human trafficking in the UK? I mean, has it really become, you know, the government would have liked us to uh, think that this uh, policy of sending asylum seekers uh, to Rwanda for processing to be a deterrent uh, against you know people coming to the UK illegally. Uh, but I believe that uh, actually the figures have shown that there is a, an increase actually in uh, crossings uh, in illegal crossings uh, through the channel. So that's our first topic uh, in the first hour, I should say. And then in the second topic, uh, the other end of the spectrum, friendship. Okay, and all the aspects of friendship. You know, I, I suppose the quote or the saying that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. So um, it's that that way inclined yeah is that is there any truth to that so we've got some guests uh speaking about friendship but uh without further ado we'll jump into our first uh topic which is um human trafficking but before we go into that actually if any of our listeners out there if any of you have anything to say you want to join in the conversation please call us on 0208 7878 or uh, sorry, o two o eight six eight seven. I should say seven eight seven eight. Or tweet us at Voice of Islam, uh, Voice of Islam UK. So human trafficking. Now, according to the UN, human trafficking is the recruitment, transportation, transfer, uh, harboring, or receipt of people through force, fraud, or deception, uh, with the aim of exploiting them for profit. And uh, we see this a lot in the news currently. Uh, men, women and children of all ages and from all backgrounds can come, become victims of this crime which occurs in every region of the world. The traffickers often use violence or fraudulent employment agencies and fake promises of education and job opportunities to trick and coerce victims. And we've seen this time and time again uh, with those you know, 
really kind of you know, victims, right? They, they are victims, uh, fleeing from all manner of uh, conflict. You know, like um, you know, we've seen like with Syria, uh, obviously currently uh, in the Ukraine, the conflict in Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia. So we have this influx of refugees uh, and people basically seeking seeking safety. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, you do have those agents, human traffickers, or those you know, gangs, criminal criminal gangs, who will use that as an opportunity to make money. Now, 50 years ago, the abomination of save, uh, slavery uh, seemed like the actual thing of the past, but history has a way of repeating itself. Uh, today, we find that uh, human slavery is once again a sickening reality, and at this moment, Men, women, and children are being trafficked and exploited, not just you know here in the UK, but actually all over the world. Now, according to official slavery experts, up to 136,000 people in the UK are trafficked, and in uh, in terms of modern day slavery, and uh, out of those, uh, around 10,000 are actually children. Now, it's impossible to ever reach a consensus on the true scale of the problem, but Regardless of the figures, what matters is that human trafficking is big and getting bigger. Um, you know, Danielle, what does actually Islam, uh, you know, talk or Islam uh, say regarding this issue? Yeah, well, when we see to Islam, yeah, when we look at the Holy Quran, uh, God Almighty has bestowed honor on every individual, irrespective of skin color, race, nationality, etc. Yeah. And no one can be made a captive without a just a cause, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, in Quran chapter 90, verse 12 to 17, uh, God Almighty says that, And what will make you realize what is breaking through the difficult passes? It is to free a slave and to give food in times of famine to an orphaned relative or to a person in distress or to be one of those who have faith and urge each other and urge each other in compassion. Hmm. Uh, the promise, uh, the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the uh, peace be uh, peace and blessings upon be upon him, uh, also warned us that Allah will punish those who enslaved free people on the day of resurrection, essentially prohibiting the racial slave trade that was fueled by kidnapping. Uh, we can find an hadith yeah, uh, by Holy Prophet. Uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He said, Allah will oppose a man who sells a free person and consumes the price. Mm. So even, you know, those uh, the chapter of, uh, sorry, that verse in the Holy Quran that you've quoted and uh, these 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 uh, traditions, these sayings from the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. You know, this is over 1400 years ago. And even then, at that point, and if you, uh, well, I was about to say if you cast your mind to the Arabian Peninsula back then, but obviously we can't. But if we think back then, um, the society that was prevalent uh, during the times of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, slaves were commonplace. Um, and, you know, they were part of your chattel, they were part of your household, yeah, they were part of your wealth. And, you know, the Holy Prophet had the foresight, the God-given foresight, I should say, to eradicate slavery. And, you know, this the unfortunate, um, I suppose, thing now is that 
14, you know, 14, over 1400 years later, we're still talking about these same things, right? Um, And, you know, that the fact of the matter is that, you know, there are situations and, you know, I don't ascribe to um, the arguments against, uh, you know, the the, uh, uh, more open immigration policy into the UK regarding asylum seekers and refugees, basically because everyone has the human right to safety. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, say, for instance, you know, you are and I'm sure, yes, there are a percentage of those who are who are coming over are economic migrants, but not as much as the media uh, would uh, would want you to think. Right. Uh, The majority uh, are. And and according to even the government's own statistics, the majority are actually seeking asylum, seeking. uh, They are true refugees in the word. Uh, they are coming from conflicts, areas of conflicts, whether it be Syria, Yemen, uh, Afghanistan. Um, yeah. yeah, And it's a valid, valid, uh, um, I suppose, trip, you could say. Yeah, I mean, who in their right mind, really, Daniel, would leave their homes? Yeah, no one, yeah. So it's a basic human, you know, um, uh, nature. Yeah? So everyone have, wants to have their basic human rights. And in order to get those basic rights, you need that environment. You need those basic um, uh, facilities, mm-hmm. which they are not getting in their back at their home. Yeah, so they have to flee from their uh, home mm-hmm. to such a country yeah, where they can get their rights. Mm-hmm. So that's why there are so many refugees who are coming uh, to UK or mm-hmm. other European countries. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're pretty much saying it's right here. Yeah? Mm. I mean, the thing is, uh, to say the truth, Daniel, you know, if you yeah, why would you flee your home unless you know there is a you know there is that that need to and then that, that need to is that actually because you know what your home uh, there is conflict right yeah. um and we've seen it you know we've seen it uh, in the images from news uh, whether by um it's you know through conflict of their own uh, or whether it's geopolitical say for instance the conflict in Yemen uh, and you know it's understandable. Why would you? Why would you just run away from home? You know, just for the sake of, say, for instance, you were supposedly this economic migrant for a better, um, living, yeah. yeah, for a better living. Yeah? yeah, I mean, you know, if they come over here, they'll get stuck in all these queues going down to Dover and whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not that great over here currently. <laughs> But I suppose it's that saying, uh, you know, the grass is always green on the other side. It's, I, really, in answer to that, it's just different, right? It's just different. Yeah. So if we actually look at um, uh, some of the financial and global statistics, yeah, human trafficking is a uh, $150, $150 billion industri- industry globally. And in fact, the International Labour Organization estimate, uh, estimate reveals that 40 Around about 40 million people uh, were victimized worldwide through modern-day slavery. Uh, 5.4 victims per every thousand people in the world. Now, um, of these 40 40 odd million uh, victims, 29 million were women and children uh, and girls. 70% of the total amount. Almost 5 million were victims of forced sexual exploitation uh, globally with children making up more than 20% of that 
uh, 20% of that number. So we're actually joined by our first guest of the day uh, to talk more regarding this. Uh, so we're joined by uh, Andrew Wallace, is the founding CEO of Anti-Slavery Organization of Unseen, which provides safe housing and support services for survivors of trafficking. Uh, runs the UK Modern Slavery and Exploitation Helpline and works with businesses and others in the eradication of slavery and trafficking. Uh, peace be upon you. Andrew, thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Thank you for having me. So uh, we're talking about human trafficking uh, in, you know, in global terms and I suppose more domestically you know, on our shores here. Now, as a national charity, you know, helping victims of trafficking and modern-day sl- slavery. What are your views on the ongoing, uh, you know, on the UK government's policies and, you know, motives uh, in tackling modern-day slavery? Uh, that's a really good question. And I think I, I would start by saying that, you know, the scale of the problem in the UK is we would say at any one time there are at least 100,000 victims in the UK. Uh, costing the UK PLC somewhere in the region of £40 billion per annum um, as a problem. And I think the reason I started with those figures is I think we've seen a shift in the last five to six years where you know, previously we had uh, primary legislation brought forward. It was uh, a priority for the Prime Minister, Theresa May. There was a national um, council that was looking at it. And I think what we've seen now is that the problem is being put into that too big, too difficult category that politicians like to put sort of complex problems into. Um, And then secondly, I think what we've seen in the last few years is this conflation of issues. So as if smuggling, migration and modern slavery are interchangeable terms when they're not. They're related, but they're very, very different things. And I think as a result of that, we've seen a decreasing importance by politicians on focusing on this issue or just saying it's a migration problem or mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's everything that we're trying to do in making our borders secure. The consequence of that is that we're seeing more victims not being identified. Um, uh, but at the same time, more, you know, there's an, you know, a 20, 20 to 30% increase in the number of victims that are, that are identified and are entering services in the UK. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, going, coming back to the, just the last part of that question, you know, I mean, what do you think are the actual true motives then of the government with this type of policy? Well, we've, we've just sort of come through the whole process of the Nationality and Borders Act mm-hmm. uh, coming into effect. And what I found remarkable was is that you had the third sector, so charities, you had law enforcement, you had businesses and academics in complete alignment in opposition to what the government was trying to do. Now, yes, the government came in with a mandate of, you know, we're going to secure our borders and we're going to deal with the illegal entry problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but into this Nationality and Borders Bill, they inserted things, uh, you know, about modern slavery. And, and this was a bill about trying to sort out immigration and, and trying to sort out the small boats crossings, which is smuggling. It's not trafficking, it's smuggling into the UK. And, and all of you know, the sector and wider, as I said, said to the government, this is the wrong place for, uh, to deal with modern slavery. De- deal with it through, you know, we have primary legislation, it's called the Modern Slavery Act. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a, there was a deliberate um, toughening up for the victims to come forward because they're threatened with being deported. 
they're time limited in terms of they have to tell the story you know the first time and, and one thing that we know from working directly with victims is that trauma doesn't enable you to tell the story the first time accurately mm-hmm. in, in, in a linear fashion so it is it's made if you like the hostile environment is now a hostile environment towards victims of modern slavery as well i mean that's truly so when hearing that that just uh, you know it's just i i personally think that's deplorable because yeah i totally you know uh, understand as you've described it you know how what a traumatic process or you know event you've had happen to you anyway and then to actually be questioned so stringently regarding you know oh you know what's happened to you and it's understandable that you know the 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 finer details are going to slightly change and to have that kind of hostile environment um yeah it's it just seems so far away from our real true um beliefs and ideals in this country yeah and i, I you know i think this is what you get when you have a drift towards popularism because mm-hmm. it is about defining who the other is and then making life as difficult as possible for the the other and you know the other includes victims it, it's people that have been exploited and you know this is these are people that have been exploited in sexual exploitation in forced labor in domestic servitude in forced mm-hmm. criminality um, and even organ trafficking you know all all of those examples of trafficking i could give you recent stories mm-hmm. that have been in, in the media you know in the, in the last month and these are people, you know, who have been turned into a commodity mm. for the sole purposes of making money, who are incredibly traumatized by that process, and now are faced with a government that is far more hostile and, and much more skeptical mm. in believing them, or they're going into a system where they have to put, you know, their, uh, you know, their lives sort of for complete examination by mm. people that, you know, aren't always victim focused and mm. you know don't have that empathy of, i suppose yeah and, and we've lost sight of what we were talking about sort of five years ago where mm. you know, at, at the same time the government wants to sort of say you know we we want more prosecutions and, and we want to deal with these things but mm. actually if you treat victims well then all those other things flow from it because they begin to trust again then mm-hmm. they feel confident to tell this real story of what's going on then they feel the confidence to, to seek justice through the criminal process. Mm. I think Daniel's got a question. Yeah, I've got a question for you here. So as with human trafficking cases rising here, more and more people falling prey to modern slavery, do you believe there is enough support available for victims? If not, what could be the consequences of this? <laughs> Another great question. Um, thank, you, thank you for the great question. Um, <laughs> that's, our, that's our purpose here, Andrew. <laughs> what to ask good questions and to wait for good um, answers as well yeah yeah i mean there are support um processes in place so that in the uk we have what's called the national referral referral mechanism um that term is used both for the the, the validate the, the validating somebody's claim to be a victim so oh. and, and unseen as one of a number of uh, subcontractors of a government contract that supports victims so that support mm-hmm. is there but many people are now choosing not to engage with that and there are other charities that are offering services as well but one of the reasons that people aren't engaging with those services is partly the increased hostile environment but also they have to put their lives on hold whilst the, their cases are being investigated. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing delays now of nearly two years for wow. people's decisions to be made. And so, you know, you're, you're dealing with trauma, then you've got to put your life on hold, and then there's an uncertainty at the end of it. And, and now that we've left the EU, many 
you know, when they get to the end of that process, have no right to remain in this country as mm. well. So, you know, you're having to weigh up a whole bunch of things on top of do I trust the people that are telling me this in front of, you know, that are in front of me. I've been told all my life that I can't trust the police or I can't trust Border Force or mm-hmm. uh, and what life's thrown at me. I can't even trust the NGOs that are, that are, that are you know, saying, actually, this is the best step forward for you. So, mm-hmm. yes, support is there. But should there be more support? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this is a, uh, you know, we've gone from, you know, a few hundred victims being found every year to nearly 13,000 victims found in 2021. And remember, that was within the context of the pandemic as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and looking at the numbers for 2022, you know, we're probably going to see a 30% increase on that. So lots of victims are being found, but, but um, you know, we're also seeing this trend of lots of victims being found, but choosing not to engage with services. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's understandable. Now, obviously, with uh, Samo Farah coming out uh, in, you know, in the media recently and uh, with his own documentary regarding and sharing his story about how he himself had been trafficked to the UK. I mean, do you think this will actually help other victims as well? And how important do you believe it is to hear and share human trafficking um, victims stories uh you know in the media uh you know to keep that spotlight on 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 this issue i mean, I mean let's acknowledge Samo's courage you know coming forward this is mm-hmm. you know something that took him three decades to process to, to get to that place where you know he could say actually this is my real story mm-hmm. yeah you know, um so i think we have to acknowledge that and, and let's not forget now with this new borders act you know, they're going to try and time limit that. So that would have sort of nullified some of those story. Um, yes, increased awareness does help. And I think, you know, when it's someone that is so prominent and so loved as Samo, mm-hmm. I think it stops people in their tracks and they go, oh my gosh, it can really happen to anybody. You know, here's somebody yeah, exactly. that's in the public spotlight. Mm-hmm. We, like you said in, in the introduction, we run the UK's Modern Slavery and Exploitation Helpline. In the week following the broadcast, we saw a 20% increase in calls. Wow. Now, it, it, I, I can't categorically say, you know, that there's cause and effect, but we, we definitely had some calls that referenced the mode, but we, we, we saw that uptick in calls. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it does help. <clears throat> and, yes, humanizing and personalizing the stories is, is really important. What the, the dilemma we face as a charity when, you know, like I said, we work directly with victims, is how do we keep those victims safe? How do we not re-traumatize them? And how, do, you know, how are we not putting someone out just to um, you know, share the, the horror and the trauma of, of what they've been through again, you know, which can set them back themselves? Mm-hmm. So it's always a tricky balance um, to, you know, to uh, provide that. Uh, and I remember talking with a clinical psychologist in terms of, you know, what's, what's the, what are the timelines that we're talking about when somebody can, sh- can tell you what has happened to them mm. without being re-traumatized? And they said, you know, uh, there's no averages, but on average. It's, it's like how, how long is a piece of string, really? I mean, everyone's well, yeah, different. And, I mean, they said, you know, minimum seven years. Well, and that just gives you and the listeners a sort of an appreciation of, mm. you know, what people have got to get over. And, you know, go back to Samoa. It, it took him 30 years, yeah. you know, yeah. from that nine-year-old child to being in a place where he could confront what had happened to him. And even 30 years on, you know, I think the film brought it out. And I would encourage listeners to go and watch it on the iPlayer. Mm-hmm. You, you see the internal conflict that, is, that he's wrestling with 
because of what happened to them as a child. Mm. And I, I suppose also what that does highlight is that you know that that fear of what repercussions you will have if you come forward as well. Yeah, and and you know for Samo he he was worried that he would be stripped of his nationality yeah. Yeah. Know, and and turfed out the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and the Home Office, you know, quick as a flash, said, "Oh no, 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 that won't happen." Uh, you know, but my challenge back to the Home Office is, well, if that's the case, then at least be consistent with every victim. Um, <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. that's. So, the, I, you know, I think, I think actually, Andrew, that's that's what all of us want is actually consistency with the policies that the government comes out with, instead of, you know, I suppose, you know, just one one rule for one and one rule for the others. Well, could you imagine the uproar if Samoa had been stripped of his nationality? Ah. Yeah, it would have been, you know, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, yes, there would have been uproar. Um, but then uh, there's a part of me which would say because of not just the government's record regarding uh, immigration, but other issues uh, within the economy, uh, within their governance, it's a bit kind of, well, it was a bit, it was expected because this is the government that we have. We we live in strange times. Mm, we certainly do. We certainly do. I think Donald's still got a question uh, for you, Andrew. Yeah. So Andrew, yeah. So how can we encourage um, such victims here yeah, and to help uh, this cause and the lives of uh, victims better in any way? Um, I think there's a there's a number of things, and and I think especially for your listeners, it's it's learn what the indicators are of modern slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, let, let me take it back to that Samoa story. You know, there was a teacher that was inquisitive enough to go, something's not right here. Yeah. You know, they, they're not dressed properly. We've got behavioral problems. The parents never come to parents evening, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, we could take up the rest of the show going through all the indicators, but I've got a really simple solution. So for the listeners, if you go to the app store or the Apple store, is down, search for the Unseen app and download that. We, we've created that app. It's got all of the indicators of what modern slavery is. Mm-hmm. So become familiar with them and then be um, eyes in, the, in your community and a voice for those that have no voice. So when you see things and spot things that you don't think are quite right, and sometimes I just say it's, it's almost like a gut feeling, something's not right here, mm-hmm. then either call the helpline on 0800-121-700 or you can report directly through the app and it's confidential, it's 24-7, it's 365. Mm-hmm. But just report your concerns. Then secondly, ask, write to your MP and ask them to do more to support uh, the work to combat modern slavery and to support victims. And then thirdly, and I would say this, but you know, um, go to our website, unseenuk.org, and, and support us as, as we try and work towards a world without modern slavery. Mm. Doing those three things, they're not necessarily directly related to you know working with a victim because that's that's really difficult, and most victims are found by police and border force or, or the third sector. But by doing those things, by being eyes in the community, by being ears and and speaking up for those that have no voice. That's how you can you can really help victims. Mm, and I, mean, I suppose those those steps that you were talking about, Andrew. In my mind, I'm just thinking, well, that's just basically neighbourhood watch. That's just basically being a good community, as we should be anyway, uh, to help our fellow brothers, really. But Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Great to be with you. Thank you for talking to us. Have a good day. 0208 687 787 in my mind went a blank then or tweet us at voice of islam uk 
Um, we're going to actually be going straight to our next guest if we have them ready, uh, and uh, we'll be going to Ali Hussain. So Ali, Ali is a solicitor at Legal Justice Solicitors, uh, who are actually immigration specialists. Uh, they specialize uh, in the immigration field and have specialized in the immigration field, I should say, since 2008. Peace and blessings be upon you, Ali. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. So we've been talking about human trafficking. We were just talking to Andrew, the uh, CEO of Unseen, the charity, and the the scale of the problem of human trafficking. So as uh, a lawyer, uh, seeing it from the uh, jurisprudence side of things, now fighting uh, many uh, refugee and asylum cases, what are your views on the new Nationality and Borders Bill? Well, I think it's... Um, it's part of that hostile environment. I think uh, many people have heard that uh, mm-hmm. on the news and in the media um, over the last, uh, well, I would say, six to six to eight months. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the, the Borders Bill has gone through now and it's um, statute law, so we have to just try and deal with it as best as we can. Um, but um, we're still finding that a lot of people who are currently in the system, um, there's big delays, but the ones that are coming through um, some are being granted and some are being refused, but the ones that do get refused, a uh, majority of them, I would say over 50% of them, get allowed out of appeal. Mm-hmm. So um, how is it going to actually tackle... I mean, I, I know the main focus was on the trafficking and trying to um, stop the trafficking and off trafficking of people to the UK, mm-hmm. but it hasn't actually stopped... You know, the little bolts coming through and people hidden in the back I of the lorry. I mean, that, that's exactly what we've seen, actually, in news reports. I think the select committee uh, two weeks ago said that there actually has been an increase in the uh, people, you know, uh, crossing the channel, you know, in dinghies mm-hmm. and rafts. So, <clears throat> you know, that uh, it was to my belief, um, obviously, you can you can correct it uh or not, but my belief was that uh, the Home Secretary's implementation of this uh, Borders Bill was to actually be a deterrent for um, you know these these traffickers, these gangs, to yeah. send uh, you know these people uh, across the channel on these little dinghies. Who's to say that the traffickers are educated people? Um, they could they could be people who are naive, who don't listen to the law. Mm-hmm. Um, as it is in the UK, um, they're across the waters, and you know they're more into profit. If they can get people to pay up to get them to the UK, or if there are people waiting here on this end, waiting for people to come and then work in their establishments, you know, mm-hmm. especially women who, um, you know, normally who get trafficked to the UK in the sex industry. You know, these people are not bothered about the statute law Mm. being passed in Parliament. Uh, They're more bothered about their profit Mm -hmm. and how much money they can make off people coming to the UK. Now, I think it was a deterrent. I mean, I think that's the aim when they started off with the Borders Bill um, and we came out of Europe. Um, But... Uh, I think people find ways, if they want to come to the UK, they will find ways, and they mm-hmm. will find different ways to come to the UK. Um, you know, some go through Ireland, for example, so they'll fly to Ireland, mm-hmm. on a, maybe a visit visa, cross over to Northern Ireland, 
get a boarding card and come to the UK. Because mm -hmm. um, there's no border in Ireland. So people will find ways, even if it's not the trafficking that's going on, but they just want a better life in the UK or they want to claim asylum or mm. fleeing persecution. Um, they will find they will always find ways to come to the UK. I think it would have been better if the Home Secretary could have got her house in order, mm -hmm. made quick decisions, the ones that were refused, send them back to their country, the ones um, that were granted they can then continue on with their lives in the UK. Mm. Um, I'm mean, currently working on a particular case where um, I have a nurse, a qualified nurse. Mm -hmm. She's in the asylum process. You've got a shortage of nurses. Why mm. not let that person work in the UK? Why does that person have to wait 12 months if it's there's no decision on her asylum claim? <laughs> That's a very valid question, Ali. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, I think the Home Secretary needs to think outside the box like, mm. sometimes. I mean, can you um, actually, just, just for, I'm a bit ignorant exactly as to the the nuts and bolts of this um, sending asylum seekers uh, to Rwanda, that part of the policy, because um, maybe I'm mistaken, but my understanding is that even if they are sent to Rwanda uh, as a offshore processing facility, let's say, um, for the Home Office, and once their asylum has been processed and actually... Um, validated and they are granted asylum they uh, are given asylum in rwanda is that correct uh, my understanding that's correct hmm so that's a bit <laughs> that's a bit of a quandary to me right so yeah i don't quite understand that and then i think uh recent news uh, has said that actually the rwandan government has said you know we will uphold our end of the deal but we can only accept 200 Asylum seekers. Yeah. So, what does that equate to? Um, how many millions of pounds did the Secretary of State um, pay to Rwanda for two hundred people? I mean, you could have put somebody through. I think there was a post on Twitter. You could put somebody through Eton for that mm. in a private, you know, private education. It's, it doesn't make sense. The money, the amount of money that they've thrown at this deal. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to want us something, aren't they? I mean, if they paid out this money. Um, they want they have to be able to show to the public that they've got value for money. Otherwise, they've kind of thrown money away, um, throwing money away in the bin. Well, the, so they're I going mean, to try and pursue it. And 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 the leadership candidates at the moment, I mean, Rishi Sunak, mm. um, for example, he said, "Yes, I will continue with this policy, mm -hmm. but make it workable." Yeah. I think, in his words, make it a workable policy. Uh, how how it will become a workable policy? I I. I I, I don't really have right. the wherewithal, but mind you, I didn't go to Winchester or Eton. Um, <laughs> bringing, uh, actually, you know, another thing, uh, another aspect of this, uh, Ali, is that the majority of actual cases are funded by legal aid. Uh, and it's uh, a fixed fee, uh, is a fixed fee, I should say, the right amount set by the legal, set by legal aid agency. Now, and has the bill had an impact on legal aid providers? Okay, so um, I can only speak for myself mm -hmm. and um, some providers that are around the Yorkshire area because we're based in Sheffield. Mm -hmm. um, a number of providers have stopped doing legal aid asylum. Um, so a number of providers have um, gone. They've just kind of disappeared now. 
Uh, we continue to do it because we offset ours with private work. Mm. Now, the legal aid rates, um, the fixed fee, was, I believe, was set around the 2012 year. Um, and they haven't changed since. Right. With inflation, with mm -hmm. everything going up, you know, we still get paid the same amount. I mean, just to, tr you know, travel expenses as an example, we get 45 pence a mile. Uh, I mean, the price of diesel has gone through the roof. Yeah. The legal aid agency, I think, should come into the real world, if I should say, and kind of adjust prices accordingly, especially with inflation. Mm -hmm. But they don't do that. Um, so what happens then is there's a vicious circle. So legal aid providers then disappear, and there's not enough of us. It's sim similar with the, you know, the crime, you know, legal aid crime. And then there's a shortage. So there's a, there's a bit of, um, for example, in Sheffield, there's not enough providers, but there's more people in Sheffield seeking legal aid asylum. So you can only cater for so many, you know, per month, per, per year. Um, that leaves, then there's other immigration advisors who mm -hmm. will then approach clients and they may say, look, you know, we, we can do this case and this is how much it's going to cost. And, and what does that then lead to? Because they can't get legal aid client, uh, legal aid solicitors, the clients will probably go out work and that money illegally mm -hmm. to pay a solicitor to fight their corner. Mm -hmm. So it's like a big vicious circle and they're trying to stop trafficking. They're trying to stop people being exploited in the UK, mm -hmm. but the system... The, sis is, the system is, enables is, them to be exploited, unfortunately. Exactly. Mm. I mean, do you find, do you find then, Ali, like, uh, I mean, you know, we've seen in the news in the last month that uh, actually criminal solicitors and lawyers, uh, you know, QCs have actually come out striking. Um, you know, in terms of criminal law, and, you know, now, obviously, this immigration, you know, will immigration be, be next then? I mean, you know, from what you've said, it pretty much looks so. I, I, I think so, yeah. I think with the rates as they are at the moment, I think eventually either more providers will just disappear uh, and they will just go private and not do illegal aid. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, there, there's got to be some kind of demonstrations um I mean, we, we have some bodies like ILPA, the Immigration Law Practitioners Group, who um, kind of you know, bang on the doors mm -hmm. uh, certain times, and, and there are other organizations as well. But um, things haven't really changed, and the fees haven't really gone up. They do get adjusted slightly. For example, for appeal work, we now get a little bit extra. Mm -hmm. But there's a new process where we have to do a little bit more work to get that little bit extra, um, it, it swings the roundabouts. Um, mm. I, so, I think it needs better paid, and a lot more students who are coming out of university will then probably go into legal aid if it was better paid. Yeah, exactly. I mean, effectively, if, if the, the yeah. profession that you choose to go into is so stressful and taxing uh, mentally and in times of, uh, in, in terms of, I should say, in terms of your, you know, your, your working practices, and then to have actually the funding, the government funding that goes into that industry, that that portion of the industry, uh, not really kind of like keep um, at odds, well, sorry, not at odds, but at pace with inflation, just basic inflation, then it must be a deterrent to, you know, prospective 
um, yeah, prospective students who want to enter into the into that industry. Exactly. I mean, I think um, if, if you have a love for legal aid and fighting that good fight, mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, human rights you basically have human rights in your heart and it's, and it's running through your blood. Um, you'd want to go into it, mm -hmm. but if it doesn't pay the bills, then you're stuck by. You know, you, you can't go into it. Mm -hmm. So you have to make a choice. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, a newly qualified solicitor going into commercial law may start off around 60,000. Mm -hmm. Legal aid lawyers starting off may start around 30,000, which wow. is half. It's half. Yeah. Um, it's half, you know. And with interest rates going up, people want to get onto the, you know, the property ladder and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. You know, it's a consideration, isn't it? It's a, it's, it's a it very, is. very, very serious it's, consideration in terms of you yeah. know what your what your career twice. path is. Yeah, hmm. people will think twice. I mean, hmm. we we have to um, mix private with the legal aid. Hmm. We have to do that as an organisation, otherwise we will not survive. Hmm. Um, if you were purely legal aid, it's going to be difficult. And I'll tell you another thing with the legal aid as well: they pay hmm. you at the end of the case. Right. That, okay. So it could be years, big, big. years in the process, and say, for instance, you don't get the the correct uh, adjudication in your favour, you're not going to get paid. Uh, no, with, with asylum, you do. You at the initial stages and the appeal work, you still get paid. Even mm -hmm. if you lose the case, you still get paid. Right. You, you know that's the way the system is. But if I take on a case now, there's big delays in the Home Office, and I am now waiting two years, three years to for that case to settle. Mm -hmm. I won't get paid. I'll get paid three years down the line, but I've still got my you know staffing costs, mm, and my electricity, okay. and all the other overhead. So, mm -hmm. how do I run the practice when I've got no cash coming in? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have to I have to rely on the private work. And mm -hmm. and to be honest, if there's if I have two clients in front of me, one was being private and one on legal aid, I would always take the private one first. Mm -hmm. But mm, just that, as a manager, I would I would have to do that to mm -hmm. keep the, the practice right. Um, but obviously, we we don't do that. I mean, we 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 kind of split it up. Uh, mm. So many case workers will take legal aid, and so many cases will take travel work, and mm. then we kind of balance it that way. Mm. Um, but COVID, you know, COVID had an impact as well. So mm. everything closed down. No decisions are coming in. You know, affects cash flow. Mm. And it's, it's, pay us until the end of the matter. Yeah, and that's the that's that's the worrying thing, Ali. That that you know that COVID has has been a global epidemic, um, but most countries have the the majority of countries have now come back to it and been able to adjust economically to COVID. It, to me, it just doesn't seem that the UK has kept a, a abreast. Uh, with other countries regarding their response economically after COVID. I think Daniel's got, got, got a final question for you. Yeah, so I've got a question regarding the bill. So from a legal point of view, since this bill does go against international law, Refugee Convention 1951, do you see this bill to gain momentum in the future? Uh, well, the UNHCR uh, waited in, didn't they? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's still passed. And I think um, the way things are going at the moment, um, this hostile environment, as long as the Conservatives are in, um, I think, yes, um, it will continue. They will continue down this path. They don't want to lose votes. People are sick and tired. 
I mean, the, the main thing, the main reason we came out of Europe was because there were federal problems the immigration. with the Europeans coming in yeah. and the immigration, weren't they, right? Yeah, they, two, things, two, two things that got us yeah. Brexit done or got Boris Johnson getting Brexit done were immigration and sovereignty, two of which yeah. Yeah, we we'd actually don't have. Yeah, and, and how many Europeans left after Brexit? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think many left. Um, and then the Home Office had a policy of everybody that's here... Um, grant them settled status or pre-settled status, so eventually mm -hmm. they'll be able to stay here. How how did that have an impact on you know UK force and you know the workforce and all that? So I think this there is a hostile environment, and I think if they continue down this route, I'll give you another example. For spouses coming into the UK, you have to meet a minimum of eighteen thousand six hundred pounds. Mm -hmm. Okay, you have to earn that before that person can come in. They've tried something else before. They, you know, they have to speak English before they come. You know, that's that's there in the rules. Um, they tried something where they said um, you have to be 18. You know, some people get married at 16. Mm -hmm. You have to be 18 before that person can come to the UK. So there are all these little things that they've put in place, and eventually, I think you know they'll come up with something else. But people will still, if they want to come to the UK, they'll find a way. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's our job as lawyers to then continue to challenge. And, um, and present their cases. Task. Yeah, present their cases. Well, yeah, well, Ali, can. yeah I know. Uh, Ali, uh, Ali Hussain, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. Very much. Thanks, Have a good day. Uh, 0208 687 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, we're we're going to go straight to our next guest. You know, we've got uh, an influx of guests. Uh, uh, what's the word? An embarrassment of riches of guests today. Uh, we're going to go to Patricia, uh, Patricia Dur, who is uh, the CEO of ECPATUK, with over 25 years public service in social justice, safeguarding and child rights sectors, uh, leading high-profile rights-based uh, campaigning, advocacy and policy work. Patricia, blessings on you. Peace and blessings be upon you. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the opportunity. So uh, we've been talking about human trafficking. Now, as a charity organisation helping to combat child uh, trafficking and exploitation, do you believe that the UK laws and policies provide, you know, uh, a goof support and, sorry, a good support and protection system for trafficked children under the age of 18? Yeah, hi. Um, so we're a, we are a campaigning organisation, but we do direct work with young people also and mm -hmm. we also do training and kind of policy and research so it's kind of like an integrated approach we take to things and the importance of that for us is that we know what's happening right here right now to young people um, regardless of what might be in place in legislation or in guidance or on paper <clears throat> and I think it's fair to say that in the UK um, we have had a really We've had good progress in these areas of child protection and welfare. We've mm -hmm. had good progress in relation to understanding trafficking and modern slavery in, in the round. Um, we've got you know a number of good pieces of, of law in place. We've got the Modern Slavery Act. Um, we've got the, the Children Act. So, you know, things are in place in theory. I guess what we understand is that on the ground, um, children are being um, let down and failed. Mm. So... Child trafficking is child abuse. That's the most important thing to, to kind of consider in all of this. And um, we know that be as a result of kind of 
austerity, many years of austerity that we've got, you know, that, that local authorities, where, which is where young people are best supported, um, you know, are kind of struggling. We also know that there's a current rollback on, on a rights-based approach to a range of different things, but, but certainly in terms of child victims who are subject to immigration control, we know that often, um, you know, they're not seen as children first. They're, mm. they're seen really as, um, you know, somebody who is subject to immigration control and therefore within a very adult-based system that is quite hostile at times. Mm. Also for child victims of trafficking, they're often um, criminalised as a result of their own exploitation. So, you know, we know that there's a lot of British national children that are referred into, uh, you know, or, or identified as potential victims. And, and for many of those and many others, that, that the, the exploitation type is often criminality. So it's related to maybe drug um, trafficking or, um, sorry, drug kind of offences or mm -hmm. other forms of maybe begging, that, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So I think the answer is no. Um, we've got to kind of really get back to where we were at and keep improving things and not roll back on children's rights. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's quite worrying when you when you think about it that, you know, before, you know, say for instance, when you're assessing uh, whether a child, you know, comes before you and you're assessing that, uh, you know, are they a victim of, you know, trafficking, that the first rule of thumb or the priority is actually to look at the immigration aspect of it as opposed to, you know, the human, I suppose, you know, the natural instinct is to look at the humanitarian part, which is, you know, this is a child who, you know, for all, you know, intents and purposes, has most probably been hoodwinked into doing whatever it is, whether it be, you know, of a criminal kind of element. Mm -hmm. um, and then just saying, look, you know what, um, I don't really care about that. Uh, you know, this is an immigration kind of thing. That, I mean, that to me is, once again, is, is quite deplorable. I mean, I think that there's a lot in that. What we, I, I think the thing is, if young people are arriving, children are arriving to the UK, obviously the first encounter is usually with border force. So, you know, the, there's that kind of element to it. I guess what what we're finding is that um, that, that becomes the main focus. Mm -hmm. And so the child gets lost and and you're right to say you know children have this is child abuse we've mm -hmm. got to keep remembering this mm -hmm. and so children have choice and control in that and um, they are completely reliant on adults around them and exploit you know that the exploitation is based on that kind of manipulative controlling mm -hmm. coercive way of behaving mm -hmm. that has maybe meant that they're trafficked into the country or they may have been trafficked on route Mm -hmm. Or, like I say, you know, the, the majority of victims identified in the UK at the moment are British national children. Mm -hmm. So, you know, children are being trafficked within the UK. Within too. the UK, I which guess, is worrying yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess the point is, you know, regardless of all of that, what we need to understand is that child's particular story, that why that, you know, how that child got to be in that situation and, and do everything we can to focus on their protection mm -hmm. in the first instance and then caring for them and looking after them according to what we know is best for children which mm. is kind of understanding what their their particular situation is and yeah, I, what I the trauma that, that they've been through exactly absolutely and i think mm. you know we know that that you know victims of child abuse are traumatized and that it often takes them 
a long, long time to understand what's happened to them, mm-hmm. to be able to talk about that in any way. And so we need to be there to to look for, to, to identify them, to look look for them in whatever system they encounter, whether it's, you know, criminal justice, whether it's immigration, mm. whether it's in education, you know, to kind of really be eyes and ears, mm-hmm. um, being alert to that. Mm. So... Uh, Patricia, just you know, just briefly. Uh, sorry, because we yeah. are coming up to the five o'clock news. Oh, sorry. Yeah, uh, my my mistake. I mean, we could talk for ages, but you know, yes. what what are your views on the Rwanda policy? I mean, should children under the age of eighteen be sent to Rwanda or included in this policy, even if they have arrived by illegal means? No, absolutely not. I mm-hmm. don't think anybody should be being deported. Rwanda and um, I think it's a dreadful rollback on people's human rights. Um, I think people have a right to have their their situations heard and understood. Um, I think there's often a a kind of um, a a confusion that Mm -hmm. created maybe to some extent in this hostile environment between smuggling and trafficking which is never helpful. There's a confusion around, you know, kind of what routes are available to people to get here if they want to um, seek protection. And and I know that young people that we work with are very worried about this. Um, The government has said they won't be including unaccompanied children who are under 18 in this policy. But we know that often their age is disputed. So we know that some young people they maybe end up being treated as adults. And we also know that victims of trafficking have been identified and given on notice that they may be deported to Rwanda. So all of that is wrong. It's mm. just, yeah. It, it, and, it, and it does not, you know, the thing that young people, children and young people need is to feel safe and secure. And they're certainly not with that sort of um, kind of, dis, you know, dis, discourse happening around them mm. about and, and I mean I think and I think um, just to interject there Patricia that you know yeah. the thing is that it seems like you know the, these these um, I'm going to say asylum seekers and refugees really are being treated as objects you know and they don't have any emotions they don't have any feelings uh, and I think I was uh, we were just discussing at the top of the the, the beginning of the show mm. you know why would you um as the government would purport uh, as the sole reason for coming to this country by illegal means is for uh, economic reasons um and you know it's the even their own figures uh, from the office of national statistics have uh, borne out that that is uh, a fallacy um and that you know that uh, yeah we as as uh, as as the uk have become this almost inhumane uh, society now that uh, yeah we're willing to just ship off you know anyone that comes to our shores uh, seeking refuge uh, basically to to another country to process them it's just just yeah I'm just yeah. astounded by even saying that statement <laughs> really yeah no and I think the the nationality and, and borders act that's just been passed into legislation is also um, mm-hmm. entrenching that kind of approach. And it's not, it's like, it's, it's, as I said at the start, it's a complete rollback on human rights. And we've made mm-hmm. such progress in that and been at the forefront of that. I find it really, really disturbing. I have to agree with you. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, I, I will say to you, the young people that we work with are worried about this. Mm-hmm. And they have described what the government is doing as trafficking. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, well, actually, yeah, almost like enabling. I think with our previous guests, you know, the 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 cuts to legal aid or the um, and the, just basically the the structure that the uh, and policies that the government currently has in situ are actually enabling trafficking to become more uh, widespread uh, and you know, easier, I suppose. Well, I think one thing we know about people who want to abuse and exploit, um, whether it be you know people working just a lone person or whether it's an organised mm. approach, is that they will find ways to do it. They really will. And, and so, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I'm going to have to you know interject there. We're just coming up to the five o'clock news, but it's been a pleasure having you on the show today, Patricia. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good day. And you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, yeah, so we're just coming up to the five o'clock news. I think, Daniel, you know, because there's still, you know, it's kind of like some some things that we need to wrap up this topic with, uh, because it is it's such a it's such a I don't know how to say it. It's a deplorable uh, thing that's happening, human trafficking, and then you know for us to be enabling it. But anyway, here's the five o'clock news. Please join us afterwards. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're live here with myself, Talib Man, and Daniel Ahmed. Um, so we're just going to wrap up um, the first topic of the day, which was uh, human trafficking. And, um, yeah, we touched on Mo Farah. Now, Mo Farah, I'm, I'm not sure if our listeners knew, uh, have actually seen the documentary regarding uh, Sir Mo. But, you know, um, he's a British long-distance runner with 10 global championship gold medals, four Olympic and six world titles. Now, Sir Mo Farah uh, is the 2012 and 2016 Olympic gold medalist in both the 5,000 and 10,000 metres. Double-double Olympic champion, double-double world champion and nine times European champion. Now, this makes him the most most successful male track distance runner ever. He's the most uh, successful British track athlete in modern Olympic Games history. Now, in July 2020, uh, sorry, 2022, this year, uh, Samovara revealed that he was illegally trafficked into Britain under the name of another child as a nine-year-old and forced into domestic servitude. Now, most people know me as Mo Farah, but it's not my name and it's not the reality. He says the real story is uh, he was born in Somalia, uh, Somaliland, uh, north of Somalia, as Hussein Abdi Kahin. When he arrived in Britain, Farah claimed he had lived with a married couple who treated him badly. His PE teacher at school, Alan Watkinson, rescued him and helped him to apply for British citizenship using his assumed name. And so, you know, Samo is basically you know shining example of what can happen but uh, i think you know when we were talking uh, earlier on to andrew uh, regarding samo it's taken you know samo farah 30 years 
to get over the trauma of that and be able to talk about it. But uh, I was just going to throw it over to Danielle to conclude for us. I mean, you know, are there any sayings of the uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, regarding this? Yeah, there are many narrations we found. Yeah, one mm-hmm. of the narration is that uh, Abu Masood Badri relates that on one occasion, uh, due to some reason, I hit my slave. And when I turned around, I found the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, yeah, approaching him. So he says that when he approached me, he looked here, um, Abu Masood. He said, Abu Masood, wh- what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Upon seeing the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, my uh, stuff fell from my hands. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah uh, be upon him, angrily looked towards me and said, O oh, Abu Masood, there is a God above you who possesses more power with respect to you than you possesses over the slave. I submitted, O Messenger of Allah, I freed this slave for the sake of God. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, If you had not done so, the fire of hell would have burnt your face. Mm. So, yeah, same kind of teaching here we found in the Holy Quran. In chapter 90, verse 13 to 14, um, Allah says, O Messenger, are you aware of religious percept? which may be likened to a great ascent upon a mountain by which a person is able to climb to the heights of divine nearness. If you are unaware, then we tell you that it is the freeing of a slave. So now we're going to conclude this uh, 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 human trafficking thing. Sir Mo Farah's courageous decision to speak out about his childhood experience of trafficking must go beyond news headlines and statements of support and lead to action to protect trafficked children and prevent others suffering harm here. Mm-hmm. So it must encourage the, the government to, to listen more trafficking survivors, including those who do not have public platforms. As a UK reviews, its modern slavery strategy, survivors' experiences will be the key to creating effective solutions that protect victims' rights and create a safe environment to access help. Sadly, it is still rare for survivors' voices to be heard in debate around these issues. Um, For our story is a reminder that if the UK is serious about eradicating trafficking, we need to listen to those who live with these experiences and not just listen but act mm-hmm. well said well we're going to have a very very short break please join us after the break when we'll be uh, tackling our next topic of the day which is good friends hard to find writings of the promised messiah salam. I tell you truly that on the day of judgment next after association of anything with God no vice shall rank as high as arrogance this is a vice that humiliates a person in both worlds. Divine mercy rescues every believer in divine unity, except an arrogant one. Satan also claimed that he believed in the unity of God, but as he was afflicted with arrogance and looked contemptuously upon Adam, whom God loved and found fault with him, he was ruined and became accursed. Thus, the first sin whereby one was ruined forever, was arrogance. Allah. 
Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to the Monday's Drive Time Show. Uh, live here with myself, Talib Man, and Daniel Ahmed. So we're going straight into good friends, hard to find. Now, in terms of you know human beings, you know, we are by nature social creatures. Now in a need of companionship and friends. Now, most of our lives depend on interactions with others. Uh, and man is therefore compelled to live in a society uh, or live in society, I should say, and with other individuals. Now, in all cultures, friendship is an important form of relationship. Uh, it is a stronger form of interpersonal bond uh, that an acquaintance or an association such as the classmate, uh, maybe a neighbor, a co-worker or even a colleague uh, and sometimes friends are distinguished from family, from blood, so to speak, as in the saying, friends and family. Now, nevertheless, friends are an integral and important part of our social life as they contribute greatly to the development of one's personality and they affect many aspects of our lives. Now, you know, uh, what does Islam say to us regarding this? Daniel? All right, yeah, so Islam says regarding this, yeah, so... Um, um, in Holy Quran, Allah says, um, O ye who believe, be mindful of your duty to Allah and keep company with righteous. Mm -hmm. uh, chapter 9, verse 119. Uh, similar kind of uh, stuff we found in uh, Hadith, uh, which are the sayings of the Holy Prophet, mm -hmm. peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Yeah, uh, He says, while explaining the impact of friends, he said, uh, Men is influenced by the faith of his friends. Therefore, be careful of whom you befriend. Mm. And, uh, you know, friendships can have a huge impact on our mental health and happiness. Uh, good friends relieve stress, provide comfort and joy, and prevent loneliness and isolation. Uh, developing close friendships can also have a powerful impact on our physical health. So the question actually arises, how hard is it to find good friends? Um, and then, you know, obviously, Daniel, you know, coming, I wouldn't say through COVID, I suppose in the sense that we, you know, COVID is still around uh, globally, but through those lockdown periods, it's even more imperative uh, regarding friends and friendship. Um, and, you know, to talk more about this, we're joined by our first guest of the day regarding this, and that's Dr. Anna Akbari. Uh, a sociologist, writer, speaker and thought leadership advisor to high-profile individuals, former pro professor at the New York University and at the Parsons College of Design. Peace and blessings be upon you, uh, Dr. Akbari. Thank you for joining us on The Drive Time Show. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're talking about um, friends and friendship, yeah? You know, how really important is it for us to have good friends? So, um, yeah, how would you define a good friendship and how much power uh, do you think can the company you keep have over you? Well, I think defining good friendship is a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. And it's something that every individual has to do for themselves. For me, a good friendship might mean 
that someone is actively checking in on me and we're making regular plans. And, you know, it, it, I could have a little checklist of criteria. For someone mm -hmm. else, a, they might consider a good friend to be someone that they see once a year um, or catch up with on, on the phone and, and new sort of in their distant past. So everyone needs to define good for themselves. I'm sorry to give such a, mm -hmm. an ambiguous answer, but I do think that's really important. Um, what I will say, though, is that we do know that close, meaningful connections are as important uh, as anything else you can do for your health because the absence of them is the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or being obese when it comes to how the detrimental effects that it has um, on your well-being. So we know that close connections are really, really important. We also know that putting all of that pressure on your significant other to fulfill all of those needs is unrealistic and uh, will erode that relationship. So that brings us back to the original question is mm -hmm. how important are friendships? They're extremely important. Mm -hmm. But can you actually have, say, for instance, uh, you know, you, there is that saying, um, you know, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to live with them. Right. But can you not actually have... Um, those types of relationships, those friendly relationships, even within the family, though? Oh, absolutely. You, you absolutely can, but I think that merely reinforces that statement mm -hmm. that you've chosen them as a friend. You didn't choose them as family, mm -hmm. but you're choosing them as a friend. And I think the difference there is that friendships require a level of investment. Mm -hmm. uh, I... For, for me to, to you know, designate it as good, it, it requires a level of investment and commitment on the part of both individuals. And so that's kind of the tricky thing about friendship, right, is that mm -hmm. you might pick someone, but they have to pick you back. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, it isn't, you aren't really getting it's, the it's, benefit. And that's what makes it so magical. Yeah, it's a bit like uh, making a bet and hoping that bet comes back or you get your stake back at least. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, what, yeah, yeah, what are active and passive relationships? I mean, are they, say, for instance, like in your definition uh, or, you know, the first you know, question that I asked you, what makes a good friendship? Um, and you said, look, you know, you could have you know, friendships which are um, when you, you're kind of looking in on your friend, uh, you know, on a, on a regular basis. Uh, others might mm -hmm. term a good uh, friendship as, you know, having friends that, you know, maybe you just touch upon once a year, right? Because of whatever yeah, it may right. be. So, you know, people's, I suppose, um, criteria are different as to what a good friendship is. So in that sense, you know, what are active and passive relations, uh, sorry, active and passive friendships? Yeah, so these are terms that I use when I'm talking about friendship because I find that they're less subjective mm -hmm. than good or bad. Right. Um, and, and so we hear a lot about kind of loose ties or close ties, and this, this looks at that same sort of concept from a little bit different perspective. So I actually put them into three categories. A passive friendship is one that, you know, many of us have in our social media network. These might be people that you've encountered. Maybe you knew them well at one point, or maybe you barely knew them, but you follow each other on social media and someone likes the other's things, maybe 
puts an occasional emoji, you know, maybe uh, something yeah. small like that, right? Those are very, what I would call passive friendships. So in other words, there's no sort of new relationship being built. There's no new memories um, that are unfolding. Then there's the periodic friendship. And that one is one where maybe you are getting together or maybe you are picking up the phone and having direct lengthier communication, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's at very um, distant intervals. Right. So you can Sporadic. decide what that means, but it's, it's a sort of, it's, I would call it the periodic friendship is the catch-up friendship, mm-hmm. right? Where that's what you're doing. You're, you're sort of saying this relationship is already sort of established. I'm merely just going to keep up with whatever they're doing periodically, and that's that. Then there's a different category, which I would really consider to be the kind of gold standard of friendships. And these are the ones that really do sustain us. And those are the active friendships. Those are the really intentional relationships where the, the flow of communication, the encounters, it's far more frequent, at far more intimate and intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're actively creating moments together. You're creating memories you're showing up for each other in a, mm-hmm. in a more significant way than merely following each other on social media. Mm. So you're actually, um, in, in terms of active, a part of each other's lives. That's correct. You're really, yes, you're part of each other's lives. And I would argue in a different way than that periodic kind of once a year catch-up. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you don't consider that person that you don't, I mean, look, distance and financial considerations and obligations there's no judgment here right that can get in the way of us having more active friendships with people that we find we're relegated to having periodic friendships with but there are all sorts of creative ways of continuing to create active friendships let me give one just one example Mm -hmm. uh so i have a friend from graduate school we live in different countries we're we're both interested in the same sorts of things um and so we actually actively read books together and then very regularly get on uh, a video chat and we discuss those books and articles (laughs) so you have a you have a zoom kind of like book club happening there it's like a book club, but it's mm. also we're, we're constantly sharing articles. It could be a movie, but things we want to sort of analyze. And so, yes, is it very different from a book club? I suppose not, but it's really just building this very active friendship. Mm-hmm. It costs no money, mm-hmm. um, and distance is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So everyone has the capability of doing that in whatever capacity is of interest to them, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't have to look exactly like that. Um, but I make I make a deliberate choice to have those sorts of relationships with people that are quite far away from me, uh, so that I can make sure that relationships that would otherwise slip into either periodic or passive stay very active. And so we can all be more mindful of that. Mm. So in a sense, is is you know active and passive is um, I would interpret that as almost being you know the intensity, the intensity and frequency of of your interaction yes. with that friend then yes i think i think intensity and frequency are are two great metrics for mm. it and you know you can decide like what does that look like what you know does that mean that i want you necessarily have to discuss this with your friends but you you know 
whatever your behavior is, you're, you can see if your friend is going to sort of show up for you in a similar way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do they respond? Um, mm-hmm. Are you going to just say to yourself, I'm going to call this person once a month. Uh, I'm, you know, I know they like this. I'm going to start sending them things like that. That's mm-hmm. going to start a natural sort of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you can be very intentional. You don't have to have some, you know, big conversation with every person in your life, but you can just see who is, who, who do you feel fed by? You mm-hmm. know, who do, what do you want more of in your life, whether it's certain types of ideas or more mm-hmm. laughter or more empathy? And then how can you start reaching out to other individuals that are already in your life mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. can fill those gaps by sort of opening the invitation? And then I think this is really important. Who then really doesn't rise to the occasion when, when you open that door and when you start giving? And then you have to decide, okay, do I still want this person in my life? Mm-hmm. Maybe I accept that they're not an active friend. Maybe they really are just now a passive friend and I can be grateful for you know, what I had with them in the past. Mm-hmm. And move on. I think Daniel's got a, got a question for you. I and I, yeah. So as you already have said that um, the friendship differs from person to person, right? varies. So do you think good, good friends are hard to find, uh, especially in this day and age, uh, and especially after pandemic? Well, I do think that our appetite for that sort of intimacy, as you said, and, that, and the freak, and the sort of intensity, right, and the frequency of what I would call, you know, real connection. So that, in, in my mind, that means that it is simultaneous. Meaning it isn't just that, you know, it's when you're on the phone with someone and you're having a conversation or you're getting together with them in person or you're on a video chat. That's very different than occasionally, you know, leaving them a a message somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I think our appetite for uh, synchronous communication as opposed to asynchronous communication has really diminished both as a result of, well, as a result of technology, as a result of the pandemic. I think also generationally, we have younger generations that are increasingly more uncomfortable with simultaneous communication, face-to-face or on the phone. And so that really takes practice. You know, it's a different style of connecting um, and it can feel, you know, you can feel more pressure from mm-hmm. it. So yeah, I think that finding people that are willing to do that with you uh, can be very difficult. It can be very challenging, very disheartening. Uh, and so you, you really need to be mindful um, about, okay, I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to ask for this. And I accept that some people aren't going to show up for me in that way. And that's why I think it's so important for people to continuously be making new friends. And as adults, we can get very lazy about that. We think our plates are full, but there's always space for more because there's always people who are not going to be matching you where you're at. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you need to be creating space for people who will. So, um, in your, you know, not just in your studies, but in your work, right, regarding friendships, what is the one quality that uh, people, you know, time and again say is the the core of a good friendship? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think it's the same as it is with any relationship, which, and I would say it's consistency and Mm. communication. Right. Uh, I think those are the two things. And the minute in any kind of relationship, those two 
either of those two things wane, it puts strain on the relationship. So could and, that be interpreted? And I think sometimes, Anna, sorry, yeah. could that be interpreted? Yeah. Like, you know, would trust be, you know, that thing? That... Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's in that same, and I think respect and trust are both mm-hmm. in that category, right? Because if you trust someone then you know they're going to be, their grade will consistently show up for you unless Mm -hmm. something is very wrong with Mm -hmm. them, right? And you're always going to be able to give them the benefit of the doubt. It isn't just that they just got lazy or they Mm -hmm. got a better offer or whatever, right? Uh, So I think, I think, I think trust and then respect. If someone respects you, they will, they will consistently show up. They'll be straight up with you. Uh, They'll communicate. Yes, and they will communicate. They will respect you enough to communicate where they're at, and they even if it's hard to say. Hmm, excellent. Well, uh, Anna, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today on the Drive Time Show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Thank you. O two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam uh, UK. Now, you know the. What are the actual, I mean, it seems a bit bit of a silly question for me to ask you, Daniel, but what are actually the benefits of uh, friendship? So if you look at um, uh, the researchers, what they have found mm-hmm. uh, at the University of Virginia, they wanted to find out whether uh, friendship influences how we approach uh, the challenges of our daily life. So in an unusual experiment, uh, researchers stood at the base of a steep hill at a 26 degree incline um, on the university campus and asked 34 students as they walked by to help them in an experiment. Mm-hmm. So some students were by themselves, others were like they were walking in pairs. So each student was given a backpack filled with uh, weights equal to about 20% of their body weight. Mm-hmm. So while the students may have had the impression they were going to have to come by, climb the hill, so the researchers simply asked them to estimate how steep the climb would be. Mm-hmm. Notably, the students standing alone perceived the hill slant as steeper and thought it would be harder to climb while carrying the weight packed. But students who were standing next to a friend thought the hill looked easier to climb and gave a lower estimates of its, uh, its steepness. Interestingly, the longer two friends had known each other, the less steep the hill appeared. Wow. So that's <laughs> an interesting fact, yeah. 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 So other studies support the notion that social support helps us cope with stress. When female college students were asked to compete challenging math uh, tasks, their heart rates went up. But when they were asked to complete the math problems with a friend in the room, their heart rates were lower. So the scientists also know that when um, they had uh, they'd done an experiment on monkeys, uh, rhesus monkeys, so when scientists also know that when rhesus monkeys are moved to a new environment, the level of stress hormones in their blood increases. And when a monkey is moved along with her preferred companion, the less stress uh, the stress hormones merged in her uh, blood were much lower. Mm. So similar results have been seen with rats and uh, pigs here. Mm-hmm. 
Guinea pigs. Yeah, guinea pigs. So all this research suggests that friends can change our view of challenging situation and that the mere presence of a friend in the same room can lower our stress. Mm. So having It's amazing that really yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just having you know someone in your in your corner you think I mean uh, that that experiment about you know the the rocks in a in your backpack yeah and just the fact that you would be thinking maybe I'm going to be doing this journey alone and then suddenly your perception is that it's a lot steeper than it is yeah you just think that he's half <laughs> part of me yeah he's doing yeah. that that worry he's you are just dividing your worry with him yeah yeah and yeah that's amazing yeah yeah it's amazing uh so we're joined by our next guest of this afternoon dr jamie krems uh and uh jamie is a social uh psychologist and co-founder of the oklahoma oklahoma center for evolutionary analysis ocean at oklahoma state university where she is an assistant professor of psychology uh dr jamie krems Thank you for joining us on the uh, Drive Time show this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. So we're talking about friendships, yeah, and actually the you know what a good friendship is and really are they truly that important? So, you know, what are the factors that influence our choice and pursuit of potential friends? I mean, is there um is there a formula that everyone uh, whether they consciously or subconsciously can kind of like fall into? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of the past research has suggested that people want friends who are nice, as nice as possible. <laughs> that that should be a no-brainer, right? <laughs> it should be. But the issue there is that that's not the whole truth. Oh, okay. um, so people want friends who are trustworthy and kind, mm -hmm. yes. Um, and in general, people want friends who are not vicious or indifferent. But what we find in some of our research is that people actually want friends to be preferentially nicer to them than to other people. Okay. So more trustworthy and kind to me than they are to strangers. And in fact, I would rather my best friend be vicious to my enemy mm -hmm. than nice to my enemy. So what I think this suggests is that the one thing that makes a friend a really good friend is that they value us more than they value other people. Mm. So basically, you know, your your bestie is gonna kind of put you ahead of almost everything else at at at, uh, at everyone else's expense. Then, exactly, they'll have your back over everyone else's. Mm. So you know, do do friends have a bigger impact on our psychological well being than family relationships? Then, yeah. So I mean. Family is huge, and our spouses are some of the most important relationships that we'll have. So I don't think I could say that they have a bigger impact mm -hmm. on our health and happiness. I can tell you that they are integral to people's self-actualization and that having friends makes the difference between um, uh, it can affect our longevity, it can affect our health, it can even help us recover faster from surgery. So these benefits has led uh, Oxford psychologist Robin Dunbar to call friendship the next best thing for our health behind quitting smoking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, with our previous guest, uh, Dr. Ackbury, she equated it that, you know, a healthy friendship um, is the, I suppose, the antithesis of actually being obese or smoking a packet of cigarettes, actually, yeah? Uh, you know, yeah. It, it offsets that detrimental, uh, you know, the, the detriment, I should say, that these things cause you. But, I mean, 
the thing is that we, we've we can understand the you know the psychological effect, but does it truly ha, has there been studies to show that there actually is a physiological um, kind of like uh, a physiological positive effect of that on each each person? Yeah, so there have been. I'll tell you, we don't know exactly how this stuff works yet. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more work to be done here. Um, But we do know, for example, that loneliness or lacking friends, as as your other guest said, is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, Mm -hmm. leads to a 25% higher risk of death. And at least in the U.S., it costs uh, roughly $7 billion a year in health care, and that's just for people 65 and up. Right. So there are certainly individual and societal costs of lacking friends and then having them can do things like I said help us recover more quickly from surgery help us deal with stress better Um, it can lower our heart rate to have a friend in the room when we're challenged Mm -hmm. and so you know what do you think uh, currently I say currently but you know with the uh, surge of social media now and I suppose Mm -hmm. Um, youngsters, and I say youngsters because I'm in my 50s, right? I don't have a Facebook account. Uh, I really am not quite sure what Snapchat's all about. Uh, I do know what TikTok <laughs> is, um, funnily enough. But so, for instance, you know, when I say youngsters, say let's say 20 and below and teenagers, they seem to me to live their lives on social media. And this, you know, has someone poked me or has someone liked me? Are we also kind of like seeing um the, you know the, the the i suppose the the role and the uh importance of friendship uh you know get too much maybe in a sense because of social media well i would say that i, I don't quite know if those things count as friendship right right so uh, but they're perceived a like to be. Can be i i think a lot of people do perceive these people as sort of part of their self-identity and Mm -hmm. may be important to my well-being. It matters to me how many followers I have, perhaps. But when it really comes down to it, the function of friends is to help us when we're in need. Because strangers are not going to help us. We look like a bad bet when we're in need, but friends Mm -hmm. do. And so somebody that just sort of likes your posts about your baby or your salad might not be the (laughs) kind of person who's really going to help you when you're in need. Right, right. So really, it's just it's, it's, we have to, I suppose, when we look at ourselves and our friendship circle, or our, I should say circle of friends even, um, those that really are, uh, I think uh, um, our previous guest said, you know, the, the, the passive or the active friendships that we have. Yeah. And I, I do think it's, it's neat to think about the fact that if you ask most women, have you ever lost a friendship they're going to say, yes, absolutely. They have Mm -hmm. a lot of very active friendships. But men tend to have more passive friendships. They typically don't lose friends acrimoniously, which is Mm -hmm. really interesting. Um, And still, we don't know what this means for health. Um, So much of our time and effort has been spent on studying romantic relationships and Mm -hmm. excluded friendships. So there's a lot we don't know. Mm I think Daniel's got a question for you. So, yeah, Dr. Jamie, yeah. So, you know that we have been through pandemic recently. So, mm. what do you think that uh, the pandemic has proven to be a true, true test when it comes to a friendship? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, so, I work with a scientist named Jessica Ayers, who has done some work on how COVID has affected friendships. 
Um, and what she finds is that, uh, at least for younger people who are relatively wealthier and better off, they report that their friendships are worse off. Okay. Um, and so we're starting to learn how COVID is affecting our friendships, at least in terms of people's self-report. But we were already in the midst of something called a loneliness epidemic. And um, students in the UK, I believe about 25% of them are saying that they're very too extremely lonely now after mm -hmm. the pandemic or during this part of the pandemic, I guess I should say. And so we know that friendships are strained. And yet some people are reporting richer friendships or being happier because they've been able to jettison friends they didn't really like that much. Mm -hmm. So it's a really complicated question, and I don't think we know the answer to it yet. Mm. So really, because of COVID, because of you know the pandemic, it's actually given an opportunity, like you said, to jettison friends and flotsam uh, in, in terms of who you perceive to be friends. It's quite easy to you know not answer them um, because of you know the, the, the I suppose the inactiveness of that friendship, um, but. In terms of what do you mean by actually richer or, you know, the, is it just the quality of the friendships that you have? Yeah, so people have been sort of forced to open up sometimes mm -hmm. or, or admit vulnerabilities and lean on one another in ways that they haven't necessarily before. Mm -hmm. And when there's sort of a, that kind of a bid for attention and mutual valuation, I'm going to do this for you. I'll, I'll bring you a pizza back from here and you'll get my groceries here. Mm -hmm. You start to build a friendship. And because I value you more, you come to value me more. Mm -hmm. And so it can sort of lead to the spiral of upward valuation or people becoming closer to one another. Mm. So then, you know, like you said, it's, it's hard to quantify whether, you know, COVID has been, I suppose, a net positive or a net negative in terms of friendships. Right. I would say um, if it weren't for the Internet, I, I think it would be generally a net negative. Mm. It is possible that um so for example males tend to have what are called shoulder to shoulder friendships where they do activities with one another rather than face to face friendships where they're talking with one another mm. and so for that i mean that has taken a huge hit um there are so many only so many activities you can do outside but mm -hmm. you know perhaps you can i've got loads of golf buddies now uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's one of those activities that you can do at a, uh, a reasonably distant kind of like to your partners but i i i take i take your point it's it's it's, it's funny the the male to female dynamic as regards to friends because you know as as we've spoken um it really truly does actually exhibit the way that you've said how males have that shoulder to shoulder and we're more kind of uh, prone to having friendships where we do group activities and maybe not get so much invested in the emotional side of each other, whilst uh, mm. females are much more, you know, one to one, more emotional, uh, in or emotionally invested in each other. Um, it really is that that kind of like the differential of the sexes. Yeah, it it is pretty astounding, and this seems to be the case across cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, it's reflected in our online friendships. It's reflected in our Facebook photos. Men mm -hmm. have more men in their photos than women typically have one best friend. Mm -hmm. um, and Joyce Benenson, if anyone is interested in this, has an incredible book called Warriors and Warriors that really lays this out beautifully. Mm -hmm. 
Well, uh, Dr. Krems, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for joining us on The Drive Time. Thank you so much for having me. Have Thank a great you. rest of your afternoon. Yeah, you too. Have a great day. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. So I was like saying, uh, or one of my questions was uh, to one of our previous guests regarding friendship. Uh, and actually, it forms the basis of our Insta story. So we asked uh, our listeners out there, yo, what qualities are important in a friend? Mm. So I'm going to chuck that to you first, Daniel. Yeah, <laughs> What do you think? Don't look at my screen. <laughs> you can't you can't look at the answer. So yeah. what do you think is the most, for you, important quality in a friend? I think the friendships, uh, you can't call like friendship just for a day or two. Mm-hmm. It, it's just built over over the over the months or years. Mm-hmm. So I think the basic quality uh, of friendship is first of all is the commitment. Yeah, mm-hmm. how true are you to your to your partner? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that sort of you know uh, sense of consciousness you should have uh, mm-hmm. when you go to uh, somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make him your partner, yeah. Mm. So I think the compi- uh, commitment is the first quality mm. of, um, of so a like, good, good, good friendship. Yeah. yeah. So like Dr. Anna was I saying, it's your the the amount of not just time, yeah, but basically the time that you've invested in that person. Yeah. 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 And that over commitment the years, yeah. over the years. Yeah. yeah. So that for you is commitment, right? Yeah. Okay. So if I look at some of the answers, uh, sincerity, okay, mm-hmm. uh, loyalty and honesty. Uh, honest, trust, suburb, which is patience, yeah, patience. Uh, loyalty once again, trust, truthful, honest, polite, and respectful, yeah. truth, loyalty, and trust. So, you know, the recurring theme in all those uh, replies from our listeners is, you know, sincerity, trust is yeah. the main issue, yeah? Um, and that's the thing. It's I, For me, it is. It's, it's about trust. Yeah. Because, you know, to be a real, you know, um, friend, yeah. friend and a true friend, uh, there's so many kind of, I suppose, metrics, so many ways of measuring. But I think for me, it's trust because, you know, you can trust, you know, it's, it's just, it's very kind of blase word, right? Trust. But it's like, I would tell my friend everything or a true friend, especially if you've known them and you've invested time, you know, you've maybe it's a childhood friend you've grown up with, they've been in your neighborhood, you've seen them grow up, um, and then you know, right, you know, that guy's yeah. got my back, right, yeah. regardless. Yeah, regardless. It doesn't matter whether you choose trust, uh, loyalty, or whether whatever commitment, yeah. Mm-hmm. The key thing is you need to know that it just happen, it just don't happen over the night, yeah. Mm-hmm. It just happens over the years, over the over months, yeah. It mm-hmm. just takes time. You have to be patient with what is, what is happening, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it might be for you it's loyalty, uh, for me, yeah, commitment, yeah. Mm-hmm. But whatever the thing is, yeah, you have to be patient uh, to make it build over the years, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, in terms of that, uh, when we look at, uh, you know, why are good friends hard to find? Yeah. So, you know, when something bad actually happens, uh, and, you know, you, if you get sick or you go through a big disappointment, you know, you, you know, you're going for a job and you don't get that job or even a major loss. It's only natural to want someone to be there for us, apart from family members. Um, so, you know, that's what we mean by having a true friend who's got who's got your back. Uh, but 
you know, what really makes a true friend? You know, why do, you know, we feel a closeness with some people uh, that with time and distance actually never diminishes? Now, as we get older, it's not uncommon to find that making a good friend becomes harder and harder. And I suppose that's because, you know, we we don't have that openness, uh, uh, you know, to kind of like new things happening. Yeah. I mean, I know I'm in my mid-50s, yeah? So I know my character is not going to develop not going to change too much right yeah. in my you know next coming years but when you're like a teenager you know you're still developing right you know your ideas are still kind of like you're still appreciating new ideas um you're still developing yourself as a, a person so you know i suppose your friendships and the type of people that you have friends with changes over time as well yeah i think the society is you know the uh, as the speed of uh, you know yeah, progressing in society is just keeping is so much you know quick that we can't keep up with the pace of uh, uh, you know the progress that is happening in building the society. Uh, one of the key factor I think is the mm-hmm. why is it getting hard to make a new friend is I think is impatience in my uh, you know humble mm-hmm. opinion. No, I I totally agree with you, yeah. Daniel. Yeah, yeah. You you put it down to impatience. I think society as a whole. Nowadays, or well, modern society, it's about disposability. Yeah, yeah. It's like actually, you don't fulfill my requirements. I'm going to move on. Yeah, because it's disposable now, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like everything. It's like social media. Oh, I don't like this. I'm just going to move on. Yeah, and then you don't really have that, like you say, your word commitment, really, yeah. to the long term. Uh, but to talk more about this uh, friendships, we're joined by our last guest of the day, Deba Chowdhury. Now, Deba is a teaching assistant at a primary school in Birmingham, mother of three boys, former president and current vice president of the Birmingham North Chapter of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Women's Association. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, uh, Deba. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Yeah, assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me on the show. So we're talking about friendships. So, you know, you're a teacher and you spend a lot of time around children. Now, do you think friends play an important role in a child's education and how much influence can a child can children have on their peers um to answer the first part of your question do friends play an important role in a child's education mm-hmm. as you mentioned i'm a, a teaching assistant in a primary school and i've seen the impact friendships can have on children's education mm-hmm. some positive and some negative we we have to remember that Friends are not only important so that children have someone to play with at playtimes and dinner times, but friends also contribute to a, um, a positive sense of mental well-being. These friends, uh, they encourage learning and these friends develop children's interpersonal skills. So having good friends enables children not only to develop intellectually, but also I feel emotionally and ethically, as, as I've seen this in my um, own teaching practice. When, um, when children see their friends in the school playground, they, they feel a sense of happiness and mm-hmm. a sense of belonging. And, and children are more likely, I feel, want to go to school if they know that they will get to see some of their, their favorite people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the second part of your question was if children can influence their peers. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, most definitely. Uh, just 
as parents are role models for their children, children act as role models for each other, um, particularly when best friendships are formed. This can, however, work both ways. For instance, um, a child who is disruptive and unspoken may then disrupt other children within um, within the friendship group or, or even class. If their if their social group is rowdy and um, aggressive, then then they pick up and, and even imitate these personality mm-hmm. traits themselves. You know, distracting them from focusing on their schoolwork. Mm, so it could have a negative yeah. impact, really, a negative Absolutely. influence. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's why it's essential that <laughs> as teachers and more importantly as parents, we we help our children understand the importance of choosing well when it comes to friends from a very early age. Dibas Chaudhuri as you know that uh, the social media has taken the world by storm. Yeah. So and children, uh, especially children, are sp- uh, spending more time online. And according to a study, one in four teens make friends on social media networks. So, do you think that schools teach enough about the dangers of online friendship, or do you think uh, more needs to be done in uh, to raise awareness? Um, schools in the the UK have a duty of care to their students. Um, and that means following a range of online safety legal requirements and guidance. Our school system addresses the dangers of cyber interactions in age-appropriate ways. However, um, I do feel we can do much more in, in bringing about an increased awareness of the dangers of social media friendships, as this is now um, an ever-growing problem in today's society, especially among our youth. And I think in the same regard, it's important that parents become social media savvy so Mm. that they can have these conversations with their children. Mm. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, I think uh, there's now a, depending on, you know, the the age of the parent or the, I suppose, the, the differential between the parent's age and the children's age, that there seems to be a gulf in that technological aspect because, you know, to me, um, I like I said to our previous guest, I don't even have a Facebook account, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah that, I, I, can talk, <laughs> I can totally relate to yeah, that. Yeah, you barely I know that. Even know TikTok. Yeah, even TikTok. Know. I mean, TikTok yeah. has my attention because there's only like thirty seconds a, a slot. But you know, there's yeah. there's, a, there's you know uh, apps that are coming out which I have absolutely I haven't got a clue about. Whilst you know, my sons, you know, for instance, they've just finished their A levels, so they're eighteen. The, you know, they come out with these names of apps. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I totally, I can totally relate to that because I'm, uh, this is why I'm saying that this is it's time that parents do educate mm. themselves and do become a little bit more savvy on what these apps are and what they entail and what children uh, can do on these apps. Uh, I mean... Um, that's really, really important mm. as well. And I think, I think, you know, the, the point is, Deepa, is, is the safety aspect because, you know, even, you know, prior to this, you know, the inception or, you know, when the internet came about, it's, 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 it's such a powerful tool uh, in terms of teaching, in terms of connection, 
but used incorrectly, it can be so harmful as well. So yeah, I do, you know, the the point that you make is such a valid point that we have to, as parents, be, you know, even if it means forcing ourselves to, you know, open up a Facebook account and get so many pokes, I don't know what, yeah, yeah <laughs> a day we have to put up with that. So, you know, today, you know, the exact topic uh, is good friends hard to find. So it's a big question mark. I mean, what is your personal opinion on this? Yeah, you know, have you yourself struggled to find good friends? I mean, what does friendship mean to you personally? Wow, that's a really loaded question, a good <laughs> question, but a, but a hard question to answer. So I'm going to try and, and pick at the different elements okay. uh, that you've asked. So friendship is one of the most significant values in our life. Mm-hmm. Um, someone someone once said, "Good friends are hard to find." harder to leave and impossible to forget. And and I think I would agree to that. Mm. Um, nowadays, I feel it's become a daunting task finding and keeping a true and reliable friend. I don't mm. know, maybe, maybe because the society we live in and work in has become very competitive. Mm-hmm. Many people want to be the best and then found to take advantage of others very often. Mm. Um, people have increasingly become selfish and care more about themselves. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, friendship to me is, Someone who, as as your previous callers ha- have also shared, someone who's sensitive, who's honest and trustworthy, someone mm. that I know I can rely on and tell my problems to. Um, and I think if you have even one friend that has these qualities, then you should consider yourself truly blessed. And, and likewise, you must also fulfill the rights that are, are due to them. Um, mm-hmm. Alhamdulillah, I have been blessed to have a few good friends in my life, um, including my late husband, who I would say was probably my very best friend. Mm. Um, and again, I, I'm reminded about what beloved Hazur says on on good friends. And uh, Hazur says that true friends can only be those whose hearts are pure and who are sincere. If one's heart is not pure, then what kind of friendship can it be? Uh, I think that pretty much sums it up for me. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, Diba Chodisaiba, you are a mother of three grown-up boys. Yeah. So, how important was it for you as a Muslim mother to be informed about what company your sons keep, and have you ever tried to influence their choice of, you know, friendship? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, only because when my boys were younger, it, it was not not an issue. Um, I was always aware of their friendship groups, including those at school, their after-school clubs, and of course, Jamaat. Naturally, I encouraged the Jamaat friendship. Um, mm-hmm. The boys loved going to their Ishtamas as they could be with their friends. Mm-hmm. I um, I always try so that's, to that's, uh, them. things within the community. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yes, within our local community. Yeah. Um, I I always try to instill in them the the importance of having good friends, as as your friends tell people a lot about who you are as a person and your character. But mm. if I'm being honest, as they got older and went to secondary and later moved away to university, it, it was not always that easy to keep track of 
who all their friends were. Mm-hmm. Um, as a mum, you, you always worry about them and mm. you can only remind your children and encourage them to make the right choices and, of course, pray for them. Um, having a good relationship with your children makes it easy for them to communicate about their friendships. But if they feel that there are certain aspects that will be subject to judgment, then they won't necessarily share mm. with their parents. Um, in this day and age, unless your children share the exact same values as you, which of course is, as an Andy Muslim parents, we all want and hope for and pray for, um, they, they might not always be forthcoming about everything, friendships mm. or otherwise. And, and I think that's the challenge we have as parents today. Mm. I think uh, very, very well said there, Deba, that it's not just being a part of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community that that challenge is. I think that's in the wider society as yeah. well. That, um, you know, we can, but just hope and we pray. Uh, and I think uh, His Holiness, Mr. Mazar Ahmad, head of the worldwide uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community, always tells us in his Friday sermons that, you know, our only weapon against anything is to implore the benevolence of God and through that is through prayer and that is the only way that we can you know uh, we can teach our our children morals uh, as best we can but you know we need to pray for our children absolutely absolutely Mm. Mm. so with that um, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon thank you for joining us on the drive time show Deba Uh, Jazakallah Jazakallah for having me thank you have a good day thank you you too so, um, yeah, well, we're coming actually to the end of our, uh, our, our program today. Um, so any last thoughts about friendship? Uh, I would say that I find it amazing to that what he has, she has explained in the, in the, in the end here mm. that uh, parents need to have a good relationship with their um, you know, children. Yeah? Uh, the relationship should be such that they, they need to be a good uh, friend with their children yeah mm-hmm. so because for example if your child is going outside the yeah, issue he or she is playing outside and going to school yeah you don't know what, what she or he is doing over there yeah mm-hmm. so in order to know what she or he is doing uh, outside um, in uh, in school whether in school or play, playground yeah you need to have a good relationship with your children yeah mm-hmm. that's the only key then they're gonna come back at home and tell you, yeah, mm. mom or you know, dad, mm-hmm. this is this what happened outside with mm. me or her, you know. So it's just having communication and commitment, yeah. and you know, with that, actually, that does bring us to the end of the program. So uh, thanks to our producers and researchers, uh, Tareem Mazamil and uh, Hansa Razak. Thanks to Habib, uh, our uh, studio technician. Thanks to my co-presenter, uh, Daniel Ahmed. And so, you know, with that, that was uh, Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. And uh, please come back tomorrow for Tuesday's edition of the Drive Time Show at the time of four to six. Here is the news.